Okay. Uh, so we'll start over here. Hello. Hi. Uh, Joe Palma, my wife, uh, Melissa, I, and our four-and-a-half-year-old son, Lucas, moved uh, over to uh, Wexford from Washington, D.C. in 2020. Um, we're both in hospitality, and clearly that was not a great time for uh, hospitality and hotels and restaurants. Um, so we had the opportunity to, to move over here and do some uh, do some cool stuff. And members of a Wells Church in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. Um, so moving over here, uh, kind of looking for a church home. And I'll be honest, this reminds me a lot of the church that I grew up in, uh, in Indiana, was baptized in. So um, that's a little bit about the me and how and where and why. Is there a question that you're hoping will be answered in this class? Hint, hint, if you tell me. There's a higher likelihood it will be. <laughs> I don't believe so. Okay. I feel like I'm generally caught up, but uh, could always, you know, go, go deeper and broader. Okay. All right. My name's Janine Doftari, and my husband and I, um, we have four grown children. Our daughter just got married and moved to Falls Church. There you go. <laughs> um, Virginia. Um, anyway, I, and this is my father, Clayton Meese. Um, Hello. Um, I grew up um, in a just a non-denominational church, and so for years I just always went to a non-denominational church. And uh, But in the last few years, I just thought, I don't know, not to badmouth anybody, but I just thought, gosh, it seems like they're having like one verse and then the rest for the service, and then it's just kind of going off like, I don't know, I just thought, I want something more biblically based. And my brother um, has um, joined the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, when he got married in 87. And so when he would come to visit my dad, he'd say, let's see if there's a church. So I started watching the church here online I don't know, probably January, and then started coming in March, and so I love it. It's like so biblically based, and on what, and it's a totally different thing. It's what God did for us instead of I don't know. It seemed like it was wasn't that way before. So yeah, and as far as question, I guess um, just some of this stuff because of that non-denominational background. Uh -huh. There's just a lot of things that are different, and. It, it just is like, okay, I got to kind of get used to this. It's not like I don't agree with it or anything, but it's just different. You mean like practically speaking, like on Sundays well, or? Um, like, like the infant baptism. I mean, I agree with that, but that was never a part of our, oh, sure. know, we did yeah. baby okay. dedication and then uh -huh. when they were old enough to believe and wanted to be baptized and they got baptized. So yeah, we'll actually be talking about that today. <laughs> so. Do you want to say anything? He's 96. That's amazing. Well, that's my excuse, being 96. Oh, there you go. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to. We can just say welcome. I uh, grew up in South Dakota. Okay. And uh, migrated to Illinois. I came here from Illinois. My wife passed away a couple of years ago. There's a good message this morning for you. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, uh, last couple of years were tough. And uh, thank goodness my daughter <laughs> taking care of me. And so uh, I've been to church all my life. Never been to a Lutheran church until I came here. And uh, most of what you do and say, I agree with. So, I guess that's it. I just, life's tough. It is. And then there my sweet wife for 63 years. And, uh, all of a sudden, be alone. That's a, yes. Well, welcome, Clayton. And if if you're new to Lutheranism, and this isn't for you, for anybody, there are no off-limits questions in the new member class. This is where I want you to ask them. Uh, I've heard pretty much everything. You won't offend me. Uh, can't guarantee that for everybody else in the room, but uh, so yeah. So if anything we can talk about, run across. 
in our class that you are puzzled about or don't understand, don't hold it in. Please ask, and we'll address it. Okay. I'm I'm Barb Vinson, V-I-N-S-O-N, and uh, I am a transfer from Ohio, and I'm happy to be here. Where in Ohio? Hmm? Where in Ohio? Uh, Manor, Ohio. Oh, okay. I think maybe I already talked about that because I was in Akron before I came here, which is not too far from there. Manor is near Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. So very good. Well, welcome. Um, any any questions that you want to make sure answered? Or? All right. Um, very good. So uh, I sent out an email to everybody that I had emails for from this crew. Um, if you fill out that sheet, Allison is going to, Allison, who's also in our new member class but is our secretary, um, she's going to collect those pages. That All that information will just be accessible by the office, really. Um, uh, and so if you don't want like a number listed on the directory, check the unlisted box there and it'll make sure that only I can see it and Allison can see it and we don't give your information out if you don't want it given out. The main reason for that is for, uh, we'll, we'll get into a little bit when we talk about what you can expect from your relationship with me as your pastor, but that's the way that I can get in touch with you if something comes up. Because a lot of times I may hear something from you directly if you know it's coming, but a lot of times that stuff, you don't know it's coming. And I may hear about it from somebody else in the congregation, and they'll say, did you hear about so-and-so? And I've done the best I can to convince the congregation they should just assume I never know. <laughs> um, because people a lot of times, and this is one of the things we'll talk about as well, they think they're bothering the pastor when they're going to the hospital they don't want to tell them. Just up front, I want to let you know it's far worse for the pastor when he finds out that you were in the hospital and he did not know. Okay, You're never bothering me with, with calls like that or... Uh, letting me know about those things because I want to come in and sit with you so you're not by yourself and to bring God's word into those sorts of situations so that you're encouraged, okay? Um, so so don't, even now, before you're officially a member, don't if something happens, don't hesitate to reach out, okay? Um, that's part of what you can expect here from me. All right, so that's kind of the nuts and bolts stuff. We're going to be recording every uh, session, so if you miss one, it's going to be posted in the same spot, that link I sent out this week on our uh, Spotify or uh, our podcast channel, um, and I'll label them so that you can see what they are, okay? All right, so last week we did a brief introduction. The class is going to be uh, 12 weeks. It ends February 16th, I believe, and then or 19th, and then February 26th is the um, new member Sunday. So go ahead and mark that on your calendars, um, February 26th, 2023. Uh, and I'll be reminding you of that multiple times before we get there. But if if you're like me, the longer in advance I get into my calendar, the more likely it is I am to do the thing. So um, so go ahead and put that in there because we want to welcome you officially uh, here at Ascension. So. Um, <clears throat> today, uh, I'm going to be beginning our journey into the Christian life, okay? Uh, some of this stuff you may know, some of it you may not. Um, and the structure of this class is actually going to be oriented around the worship service because that's what everybody experiences. And I want you to know what's happening there because if you came from other church backgrounds, we may do some things and say some things and move in certain ways and you're probably sitting there wondering... What is that about? Right? Um, and this was kind of an epiphany to me. Uh, I was watching a YouTube video that one of my members at my previous church had recommended to me. And it was a video about a guy who, um, he was a non-denominational guy, has a YouTube channel. And what he would do is he would like to interview about different denominations. And so he would go to one of their services on a Sunday morning and make notes of his questions about stuff that he encountered and observed. And then the next day he would meet with the pastor and talk to them and, and all that. And even there were so many things that he asked about that when you're in it, you just assume, well, everybody knows, right? Um, but everybody doesn't know, right? Even down to, like, why do I face the congregation sometimes and why do I face the other way sometimes? Because not every church does that, right? The pastor in a lot of churches never turns away from the congregation. So that's a strange behavior. Right? And I, I demonstrated that for my confirmation students by saying, Hi, Allison. 
how are you doing? <laughs> right? It's a, it's a strange, if you're not used to it, it is a strange thing, right? And so we're going to be trying to go through some of those things so that your experience in the worship service on Sunday morning and divine service is something that is deepened and everything that you see there and do there and smell there and all the ways things move, you'll, you'll have an understanding of. So if we're, as we're going throughout this whole thing, if there's something that isn't going to be covered, isn't covered, let's say we're covering the first part of the worship service today, and you notice something next week on Sunday, you're like, oh, we didn't talk about that, what's that about? Ask in the class and, and we can talk about it, okay? Um, so to that end, we're going to do, we're going to start with an intro to worship because as Lutherans, our understanding of worship is quite different from most other Christian denominations. And to illustrate what that uh, is like, uh, one of the things that's really interesting that nobody's probably ever read in the hymnal that's in their pew is the introduction to the hymnal. Uh, it's very well written, and it does give a nice sense of what worship is like in our church. So this was written by Norman Nagel, who used to be a professor at the seminary in St. Louis. Uh, and I've met many pastors who... They say things that he said, they called them Nagel Nuggets. I never get, got to have them, unfortunately, it was a little bit before my time. So, he writes, Our Lord speaks, and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith that is born from what is heard acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. Music is drawn into this thankfulness and praise, enlarging and elevating the adoration of our gracious giver God. Saying back to him what he has said to us, we repeat what is most true and sure. Most true and sure is his name, which he put on us with the water of our baptism. We are his. This we acknowledge at the beginning of the divine service, where his name is, there is he. Before him we acknowledge that we are sinners, and we plead for forgiveness. His forgiveness is given us, and we, freed and forgiven, acclaim him as our great and gracious God as we apply to ourselves the words he has used to make himself known to us. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us, and then from us back to him. He gives his gifts, and together we receive and extol them. We build one another up as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our Lord gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink. Finally, his blessing moves us out into our calling, where his gifts have their fruition. How best to do this we may learn from his word, and from the way his word has prompted us worship throughout the centuries. We are heirs of an astonishingly rich tradition. Each generation receives from those who went before, and in making that tradition of the divine service its own, adds what best may serve in its own day, the living heritage and something new. Lutheran worship, which is this hymnal, within its compass seeks to carry forward the great heritage and add something new. The common service, familiar to all Lutherans, is carried forward with no great changes and with some improvements where these seem needed. This will serve the continuity of our worship and an order of long proven worth. In addition, there is a service in two settings that derives from the work of the Inter-Lutheran Commission on Worship. So if you've been here for one of our third Sundays, we follow that one of those orders of worship for the full liturgical Sunday. Divine Service 3 draws on our treasury of quarrels and revives the historical lead messa, a typically Lutheran contribution to worship form in which chorales largely replace chant. So, he's going to go on and talk about some of the specifics of the hymnal, but I wanted to share that introduction because the understanding of worship that we have in the Lutheran church is that the primary actor and doer is God. It is not us. And so... Most people, when they think of worship, they think of praying and singing, right? And is that part of our worship here? It is. But it's the second move. The first move comes from God, right? And so um, that changes our orientation about the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship in the Lutheran Church is that you come here to receive what God wants to give you, right? That's all my role is wrapped up in. That's what I've been called to do, right? I'm a, I'm a minister of the word and the sacrament, the gifts of God, and he's called me to faithfully give those gifts to the people of this congregation. Right? Um, and so our orientation when we come into worship is a bit different. We're not, you're not going to, you'll see some people raising hands, you probably saw it today, um, but that's not an expectation because for us, the emotional, the personal emotional engagement in worship 
can be a great blessing, but it's not what makes it efficacious. God makes it efficacious by doing the things that he does and by giving the gifts he gives. Okay? So I wanted to set up the stage with that basic movement. Right? He says, from him to us and back from us to him. Right? And so when you start thinking in those terms, you'll start to notice in the worship service that that's kind of the back and forth. Now, as the pastor, this kind of answers the, the turning to the congregation or the turning to the altar. The pastor is called to be the instrument or mediator between those two movements. And so when the pastor is facing away from you and holding his hands up towards the altar, it's when the pastor has been called to speak on behalf of you, the congregation, to God. That's why I'm facing him. And when he's facing from the altar to the congregation, it's when God has called me to speak on his behalf to you. Uh, and so that's why we'll get into today with like the confession and absolution. I never speak the absolution facing away from the congregation because the absolution is God's word mediated through the pastor given to his people. Okay. So that's just kind of a little bit of an intro there. So the first, what's the first thing we do in worship? Sign of the cross. We do that while we say what? The invocation. The invocation, right? And what's the root word for that? Invoke. Invoke. What do you do when you're invoking something? Calling. Opening. Right, yeah. So um, you probably have heard this most in terms, well, at least I have because I've read a lot of fantasy novels, of like a spell. Somebody invokes a spell or invokes a name, right? That's what we're doing here. We're invoking a name. And that name is? In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? So we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right? Um, and so what we're doing there is we're invoking the name of God. Why are we doing that at the beginning of the service? That's why we're here. Why we're there. Worship God. To worship God, okay. But why in our worship are we going to begin by saying his name? Are we calling on him? We're calling on him, right? So we're greeting. There's a greeting element to this is in, in the worship service, right? So we're greeting God. Honoring? Honoring him? Um, yeah, I mean, there's an element of that, but that's not really a specific purpose in the invocation. Honoring God and, and what we're saying is, is an element of throughout the worship service. Is it, it's, does it have to do with because it's God-centered instead of us-centered? Yes. So um, you can recall the scriptures where it says, where two or three are gathered in my, there name. In my name, there I am. Right. So we're marking this gathering off as a gathering in the name of God. Right. So when we do that, we know who is actually present. God, right? He's promised to be there, right? Um, so when we, we're gathering in his name, and there's one more element, and this relates to uh, why we make the sign of the cross. It's identifying who we are in him. And what is the thing that we've been given that, that guarantees that? Huh? Baptism. Baptism, right? So in your baptism, this we'll call a baptism remembrance. What's said at your baptism? When the water hits your head, what does the pastor say? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. Right? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Right? So what we're doing when we invoke the name of God is we're greeting him, we're gathering his name, and we're reminding ourselves why it is that we can even be here. Because he has brought us into his family in our baptism. Okay? So baptism historically has always been identified as one of the elements of the entrance into the church. Okay? So I mentioned this, I think, well, I don't know, I lose track of who I sell these things to. But um, that's why in many old churches, where do you find the baptismal font? 
front. Ours, yours, yours is in. Well, ours is not here. It's not here at our church. It's not there. But where, if you go into older churches, where is it usually? Ours has always been up front. Any church, well, I didn't go to a lot of churches, but. Was it, was it at St. Matthew's that was up front, too? It was, yeah. I thought it was by the altar. Yeah, usually. Say, oh, so maybe old sorry. would be like before 1950. <laughs> so if you've, ever been, older. if you've ever been to a big Catholic cathedral, where's the baptismal font? In the entrance. At the entrance. Right. And that practice, that practice has been around for probably 1,700 years. Is the, in most churches, early, including in the early church, the baptismal area was at the entrance to the church because that was your entrance into the church is when you were baptized. Wow. Right. Um, <clears throat> oh, see, our church, the entrance was downstairs, and you had to go upstairs. To the uh, where you could well, never have a baptism. So one of the common maladies of many Christian churches in the United States is when they were built, they were not built with any sort of theological symbolism in mind. And there's, there's historical reasons for that. That's par partly because of the influence of Calvinism, which is why you don't see a lot of churches with stained glass windows or uh, a lot of art on the walls, because the, the revivalist nature of Christianity in the United States was, so, was of the mind that those were graven images that you don't, that you don't make all these, these images and arts. Right? Whereas opposed to if you go to an old cathedral, it's all over the place. Right? Um, now there were some practical reasons for that. Does anybody know why they, they did the stained glass windows the way they did? Because people couldn't read. Because people couldn't read, right? So if you started to drift in the service, nobody ever does that. But if you do, right, <laughs> Not here. then where are you looking? You're seeing the stories of the Bible in picture form for you. Uh -huh. right? um, so... So the invocation is a reminder of our baptism, and so baptism is, is a big part of what we're going to talk about today. So open up your small catechisms, and we're going to turn to page 23. <clears throat> So the sacrament of holy baptism. So uh, catechetical instruction is question and answer um, teaching. So all the questions are in red and the answers are underneath. Okay. So what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay. So baptism is what we call a sacrament. Now, if you've come from a church that doesn't have sacraments, sacraments are kind of strange. They seem to you probably to be magical rituals, and they kind of are, right? Uh, so the, the sacrament is the combination of the natural and the supernatural for a purpose that God specifically designates. And in our church, we don't call them sacraments unless they're salvific, okay? So confirmation and marriage are not sacraments in our church. They're very good things, and we all we typically encourage people to get confirmed, and we want them to do that so they can learn, but that isn't something that saves them. Marriage doesn't save you. Right? Um, so those aren't sacraments for us. Um, so a sacrament has a physical element. So in the, in the sense of baptism, what's the physical element? Water, very good, right? Um, and then it has a word of God that is spoken in it. So in the case of baptism, what is that? One more thing, I think, along what you said. Baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name of God, right? Um, and then it is commanded by God. So the next question there, which is the word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so for us, baptism is a sacrament um, by these definitions. Um, so the only other thing that fits that, uh, we have two sacraments in our church, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. Now, from this definition of baptism, how is it that it's okay for us to baptize Babies. 
They're passive, and God is acting upon them. Yes. So, for us, baptism is, and both sacraments, are the work of God. He's the one that's doing the thing. Right? Um, so whether you're 96 or whether you're three months old, baptism is the same thing. It's God doing something to and for you. Okay? Um, so uh, some of the confusion about this, especially in, in non-denomination circles, um, between Lutherans and non-denoms, uh, really between Orthodox Christians and, and more uh, evangelical, is this key difference I think is misunderstood. Like they don't know that we think that baptism is something that God is doing entirely, and oftentimes when we're thinking about it, we don't realize that they think it's something they're doing. And if you understand those distinctions, then the practices make sense in their own context. Right? If God's the one doing the work, and in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must have faith like a child, then it doesn't matter if you're three months or 90. But if it is something that you're doing for God, and the thing that you're doing is you're making a public confession of your faith in him, so you're pledging your faithfulness to him publicly, well, then it makes perfect sense that you wouldn't be doing that with infants because they can't do that, right? Um, so we fundamentally believe baptism is a different thing, okay? Um, so work of God versus our work, right? And the reason that from our perspective it can't be our work is... Uh, what is my faithfulness to God worth? Nothing. I'm going to break it immediately. That's why typically if you don't do infant baptism, uh, familiar practice within your church will be being rebaptized. We don't do rebaptisms because, as we say in the Nicene Creed, we believe that there's one baptism for the remission of sins. Okay? Um, you don't need to be rebaptized because if you fall off the wagon and you don't do the thing you're supposed to do, it's a good thing that the reason that we take such stock in baptism and why we remember it is it's a promise from God about his faithfulness to us, which is always there, regardless of whether or not we're faithful. Okay? Uh, and so then instead of it being something where I have to recommit myself, it becomes a part of what we're going to talk about in a moment with confession and absolution. Um, the best way to think about it, the scriptures often do this, is the parent-child imagery. How many of you have children? Okay. If your child does something terrible, do you say, you are not my child anymore, I don't want to talk to you ever again? The answer's supposed to be no, right? <laughs> no, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean that you can't be upset with them or even punish them for the thing that they did. But what never loses is their position, their state of being in relative to in their relationship with you. Right? And so it's the same with God. Right? The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is a great illustration of this because he thinks the way we do. He thinks he's so screwed up that he can only come back as a servant. And the thought never enters his father's mind. Right? And so that's the promise you have from the Heavenly Father of baptism is that he is claiming you as his own, right? So in Revelation 7 today, it talked about calling out those who've been sealed. How is it that they've been sealed? He's placed his name on them, right? In the New Testament, it's baptism. In the Old Testament, it's circumcision. A sign of his covenant that he's made with them. And even in the Old Testament, the covenant, the first move of the covenant comes from whom? comes from God, right? He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? And that's what, essentially what he's saying specifically to you in baptism. And you become a part of the church and he says, I will be your God and you will be my child. What happens if, um, I mean, I totally believe that salvation start to finish is all God's work. Yep. But what happens if, um, like, the infant is baptized or even... Well, let's say the infant's baptized, they grow up in their, with their families, taking them to church and everything, but then as an adult, they turn their back on it forever till they die. So if they turn their back on it forever until they die, then they didn't believe in Jesus and right. they don't have the salvation that, that okay. he's... Well, that's what, that's what I figured, but I just, 
I just wondered what the thought on was that. Yeah, no so it's a, it's a, uh, so we don't believe in the once saved, always saved. Okay. So there's a lot of hang up about our particular view of baptism because of that doctrine. Um, we, we believe that the reason Jesus instituted the church and gave it his gifts was because of the very real possibility of, of being drawn away from the faith, of losing the faith, right? Sure. And again, the image of parent and child can serve you well here, where, like, you could, the entire time your child is alive, express intentional desire to have a relationship with them, but if they continually say no and, and dissociate themselves from you forever, then the end result is you have no relationship. Not through your lack of wanting, Right. Right. And the scriptures, it's very interesting. The scriptures are very clear about this in that it does give the vocational responsibility to parents to share the word of God with their children. Um, I talked about this a lot at my previous call because I was a pastor of family and youth ministry. So one of the things I would say to them is, can you find a, a verse in the scriptures that talks about a pastor teaching your children the faith? And they don't exist. Right? They're not in there. The pastor has some responsibility in that role to the church at large, which includes your children, but all the explicit commands are given to mom and dad. Right? Um, but on the other end, for adult children who do not believe, the, the scriptures never once lays the blame for that at the feet of parents. Because when the child reaches a certain age, their relationship with God is between them and him. Right? Just like I can't make somebody believe in Jesus who's never believed in him, I can't make my kid believe in Jesus if they fall away from the faith. Right? So what recourse do we have? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah, that's what, where the hope comes from. Because baptism does work. We're counting on that yes. when we pray. Yeah, there's a, if you were in the, uh, in the previous Bible study they had in here, one of the phrases that I, I liked that was used in the video was, that should then be a gospel problem. And what he meant by that was it should hurt and it should foster within the people of God a desire to bring the word and the gifts of God to bear in the lives of those individuals. And that particular question, he was responding to somebody who was talking about an isolated group of people that may have never heard of Jesus. And he says, you know, we don't know what God is going to do totally in those situations. We only know what we know about the word of God and faith in Christ. And so that should create within the church a gospel problem that we then want to translate the Bible into their language and get it to them. Uh, yeah, please. And baptism does sprinkling and immersion the same thing? Yes, that's a great question. So um, the we typically, the, the standard practice in most Lutheran churches is either use some sort of uh, receptacle or just your hand to sprinkle, but immersion is totally fine. Uh, we don't consider there to be one correct way to do the physical stuff of baptism. It just has to have water, the Word of God, right? Um, so, for example, if you come from a church background where you are baptized in a lake somewhere by immersion, as long as they baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's a valid baptism. That's, that's the one baptism for the remission of sins, okay? Now, if they baptize you in the name of... of of Alvin and the Chipmunks or anything other than the Holy Trinity, it's not a valid baptism. Okay, so and that includes even if they just said in the name of Jesus. Okay, it has to be all three. That's the formula that we've been given in the Word. Okay, so even if the person who baptized you isn't a believer, if they baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's a valid baptism. That was a big controversy in the early church because what would somebody think if Oh my goodness, the pastor who baptized me, I found out that he hasn't had faith for 20 years. So is, is my baptism is a real baptism? Yes, because I'm not the one doing it. Right? I'm just an instrument. Right? I'm, I'm like the trumpet that makes the sound. I'm not the sound itself. Right? So um, if the baptism has gone and is done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit whether it's by immersion or sprinkling or any other form, as long as water and the word are there that way, it's a valid baptism. Okay. Does that mean a lay person can baptize? <clears throat> yes, actually, um, if you go to the very last page of your catechism, 
There's a short form of baptism for use in emergencies. It's at the back of the book so that you don't have to find the page and, and, when you're, and you're in the case of an emergency, and you do the baptism. Okay? So if, uh, if you're a parent and you're having a child born and you're not sure if the child is going to survive before the pastor can get to the, the hospital, then the, if the pastor knows what he's doing, he'll give you this. Say, do this. Okay? Um, uh, I baptized a baby out of a plastic bowl in a hospital room. Uh, he, fortunately, in this case, he wasn't, he didn't have any problems, but his mom wanted him baptized like as soon as possible, which is an option. You can do that. There's a, then later on, we'll do like a public recognition of the baptism so the church can be a part of it. Um, but yes, so anyone, you don't even actually have to be a believer technically to do a baptism as long as it's done the correct way, right? And that's what makes it, that's, so that sounds a bit odd, but that's what makes it the promise that it is, that it's God's work. So I can trust in that. It's not dependent upon the state of mind of the pastor. It's not dependent upon the state of mind of the family or the person being baptized, whether they're three months old or 25. Okay, um, It's just God's work. That's a great question. Um, who has the authority to bring someone to baptism? Parents have an authority. Where does their authority come from? God, right? Do grandparents? Sorry, you don't. Okay. Now, that's a different story if, if mom and dad were tragically killed and grandma and grandpa are now the primary caregivers. They're basically assuming the vocational role of parents. Then they can. Right? Um, but... Um, if you've got grandkids that you want baptized and your kids won't baptize them, if you smuggle them to church here, <laughs> I won't baptize them without the parents' permission. Now, if they want themselves to be baptized, that's a different story. Right? So if they're 11 or 12 and they say, I want to be baptized, and their parents say no, I'll say, I'm going to baptize them. He's speaking for himself. Right? Um, but that's, that's kind of the way that that's intended to be set up. Okay, so why get baptized? What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. So, this is the key distinction between um, baptism being a work of God and baptism being my own work. Is If it's my own work, it can't do any of those things. My own work can't forgive my sins, it can't rescue me from death and the devil, and it can't give me eternal salvation. There's only one person who has the authority to do all those things. And so baptism is such a comfort to us as Lutherans because we believe that is what is being given to us in it by God himself. So the person who has the highest authority of all is saying, your sins are forgiven, you receive the Holy Spirit, you're rescued from death, and you have eternal salvation. So I didn't get into it in the sermon today, but if one of you were to pass away while I'm here as the pastor... At your funeral, one of the first things that is done is a remembrance of your baptism. Because it's of extreme comfort to your family and friends to know that you received this promise from God. And so the big candle up there in, in the sanctuary, it's lit a couple times a year. It's lit on Easter and then throughout Easter season until Pentecost. And then it's lit when we have a baptism. And it's lit when we have a funeral for a baptized believer. Okay? All as a reminder and a symbol for this promise of baptism. That in Easter, the light of Christ has returned to the world with the resurrection from the dead, and in your baptism, as Paul tells us, we'll get to, is that you were killed and buried with Jesus, and you rose from the dead with him. That's what's happening in your baptism, right? So baptism um, is to, like, you can use it as a simulated act of drowning. It's drowning the old you, and a new you is being born. Right? As Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, that you're born of water and the Spirit. Right? And of course, Nicodemus is confused, because he's like, how can you go back into your mother's womb? And Jesus is clearly not talking about that. He's talking about baptism. Okay? Yeah. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When was that first used? Uh, it was used from the very beginning. Pardon? It was used from the very beginning of the church. So when Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, that's the instruction he gives to his disciples. So from then on, 
baptisms done in the church were done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning of the church, baptism was done that way. Which are these words and promises of God? So we said you get these benefits as the words and promises of God declare. So uh, which are these words? So uh, just before I go on as a note, this is the way this is set up is to demonstrate to you that this book by itself has no authority to speak on these matters. So it's always going to cite to you Scripture because Scripture is the only one that has the authority to tell you this stuff. Okay? So Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So this one has some tricky elements to it. As people will always ask, but what if somebody comes to faith in Jesus and they die before they can be baptized? Are they saved? And that extremely unlikely hypothetical, the answer is yes, they are. Because what saves you? Faith in Jesus. Okay. So what purpose does baptism serve for someone of faith in Jesus? It's an outward sign from God that the faith that you have is true. Right? Um, so if you're someone who is of faith and you die before you can get that seal then you're saved through your faith in Jesus, right? Um, but the reason that people typically ask me that question isn't because Joe got baptized on, or Joe came to faith on Saturday night, had a stroke and died before he could be baptized the next day. Usually when people ask me that question, they want to know that if somebody they think believes but has no desire to be baptized will be saved. And there's some, there's some tricky elements to that. They're tricky because somebody is intentionally disobeying a command from Jesus himself. Right? And we, we've been given an example in Acts of what the response of faith is to finding this out. Right? So you have Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip, uh, God brings, the Holy Spirit brings Philip to this guy who's reading from Isaiah, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, I, how would I understand unless somebody tells me? And so then Philip opens the word of God to him, and he believes. And then what's the very first question he asks Philip? Can I be baptized? Is there any reason why I can't be baptized right now? And Philip says, well, there's water over there, so no, we can do it right now. And that's what happens. Right? So the response of faith to the news of Jesus and his salvation and the teaching of the scriptures is... <clears throat> Is there any reason why I can't be baptized right now? And I can promise you that if you ever say that to me, or your kids ever say that to me, my answer will be, nope, let's do it. We can do a big public thing later. Right? So, uh, so for somebody who says they believe in Jesus, but they say they never want to be baptized, there's either a misunderstanding about what they've been taught about Jesus, or... They're maybe just saying that to get you off their back. Or a misunderstanding of what baptism or is. Or a misunderstanding of what baptism is, right? So, so what do we do as the church? We do what Matthew 28 says. So there's two elements to making disciples. There's the baptizing element and then what comes after that. That's what we're doing right now. Teaching, right? Teaching all that I have commanded you, right? Which includes the statement just before that one. And so that's why we're very big on, like, I want you to be a part of our church, but I want you to know what it is that we do here, right? And so the specificity of this stuff isn't to run you off, it's actually to draw you in, right? So that you can more fully plug into what we're doing here. Any questions about that? Okay. Third, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism, that is, a life-giving water rich in grace and the washing of new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
this is a trustworthy saying. So, one other element that's going on here <coughs> that we'll cover. Any questions about the infant baptism stuff before I move on? You got? You good? I'm good. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, the next one that we're going to cover is um, the Holy Spirit and baptism. So, uh, if I grew up or went to a Pentecostal church, I would believe in two different baptisms. I would believe in a baptism of water, and then I would believe in a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So baptism of water is pretty much the same as ours. Like Outwardly speaking, it looks the same. Um, so we covered that. That's what we've been talking about from their perspective. What's a baptism of the Holy Spirit look like? Tongues? Yeah, speaking in tongues. I thought... Somebody was going to demonstrate or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, so uh, speaking in tongues. So um, if there's two baptisms in the church, one's a water baptism and one's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which one do you think is the more important of the two? No. The Holy Spirit one. The Holy Spirit. Because they've separated the Holy Spirit from the water baptism, so what does the water baptism actually do? It just gets you wet, basically. Right? So... Um, we believe that this distinction isn't there. Scripture never talks about different types of baptism. Jesus only institutes one baptism. Um, and so that's part of the, the historical creed of the Christian church. That's why it says one baptism for the remission of sins. It's addressing both the issue of being rebaptized, but also the issue of separating the components of baptism into multiple steps. Okay? So in our church, when you go to have a baptism, it's both things. And we believe that this is also consistent with the way God works. He's always using the things of the world, ourselves included, to do the spirit stuff. So the, the separation of matter and spirit is something that really kind of came into the church from um, ancient Greek philosophies, largely from Plato. Uh, and it's not really there. So, uh, like, ironically, that's now become the big question of our time. Right. Is your body you, or is it just the thing you inhabit? Right. So are you the matter that makes up your you, or are you just the soul that inhabits the matter, or are you everything? The scriptures teach that you're everything. So your body isn't just a thing you inhabit, it is you. You're a creature, that's part of your nature. Right. But that doesn't make you not spiritual. Right. In fact, that is what makes you from a biblical definition, a people of God, right? Is the body and the soul together, that's you. So baptism reflects that in that using physical means, God is doing his spiritual work, right? He does the same thing in the Lord's Supper, we'll get to that section, right? It's not um, some, some hocus-pocus of spiritual body and blood hovering above the physical bread and wine and all that kind of stuff, it's both and. That's important because if if not, then fully God, fully man doesn't really happen. Right, and that's the core, that's the core of that teaching. Right, is um, is the confession that Jesus is both true God and true man, um, and He's doing that in order to redeem not just souls but creation, which includes your body. So that's why the scriptures specifically mention that at the resurrection of the dead, what's going to happen. You're going to get new bodies, right? Because we're creatures. That's a part of our existential being is the bodies that we have. Um, and so the other reason that this distinction is important is then you end up having a hierarchy within the church. So um, we're just saying this is entrance into the church period. So until you're baptized, you're not really part of the church, practically speaking. Um, so once you're baptized... Everyone's just the church, right? In this case, you could be all baptized by water, but only seven of us have spoken in tongues. And I don't know about Joe. He seems a little suspicious. I think he just made it up, but the other people were pretty convincing. I mean, you can see how, like, it starts to cause a lot of, of problems, right? And human beings are known to be emotionally excitable. And so if you're emotionally excitable and, like, eight people around you just bur burst out into tongues, what might you be tempted to do? to follow suit. And you may even yourself believe it, right? Um, but the scriptures don't tie the gift of speaking in tongues 
to like any sort of emphasis on your membership in the church. All right, so we reject that practice. For us, baptism is all done in the one act. Okay? Um, now, we don't totally, you know, disagree that speaking in tongues isn't a thing, but we follow Paul. So Paul's things were, um, if you're given the gift of speaking in tongues but nobody can understand, then it was meant for you and you shouldn't speak it out loud in church because nobody's going to know what you're saying. And so it's just going to be a waste. Have you ever seen that? I have not in any of our churches. So we must just be super bereft of the Holy Spirit or something. <laughs> yeah. Did speaking in tongues go out centuries ago? Um, so there's some thinking about that, that God is now using other means. Um, but we would say, like I've heard many credible stories from missionaries in other countries who have encountered things like that. Um, and we don't have any reason to disbelieve that they, they happen. So we don't, um, if somebody told me that they spoke in tongues, I wouldn't say, no, you didn't, right? I would say, oh, tell me about that. Um, and if it was something they could articulate to me, then maybe I was supposed to hear it. If not, then it was just for them, right? So, um, but we sort of, we don't reject the speaking in tongues, but we reject it as a sign of membership in the church, right? Paul seems to talk about it, um, and Peter talk about it in a big list of different gifts that people have um, prophesying and teaching and speaking in tongues so it seems pretty clear to us from the scriptures that it's not something everyone is expected to do um, so we think it's probably less common than people tend to think it is um, but it's definitely a real thing uh, but you won't hear it much in our circles um, you may hear it occasionally if you like an individual person um, feels like they were given something to tell you um, and then you know, you're going to have to discern those individually. But um, I heard somebody one time say they were speaking in tongues, and I was there when they did it, uh -huh. and I couldn't believe anything. Yeah. Well, so according to the scriptures, Paul says that if somebody is sharing that with you, if there was no one there to interpret what's being said, it wasn't meant to be shared with anyone else. Because what good is it then? Um, so it's sort of like on Pentecost, right? We would believe that speaking in tongues, it, we also believe it's not like speaking gibberish. We believe that it's like, if you were to speak in tongues, it would be because you're, maybe you're a missionary and you just moved somewhere and you can't speak the language and then miraculously you're speaking the language to somebody about the gospel. That would be speaking in tongues like on Pentecost when all the people are like, how is it that we hear all of these men speaking in our own native tongue? And they didn't know any of that. So that's sort of what we would think. We don't think it's like somebody just going, and then somebody standing next to him, oh, he said, hello, how are you? Um, God loves you. Yeah, right? So it's a little bit, we think it's, it's still a miracle, but it's less fantastical than is usually portrayed. Is that, can I answer your question? You were going to say something? I was going to ask you about Pentecost and what oh, really <laughs> Um, okay, so is that, that clear? Mm -hmm. All right, the uh, fourth section here. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So in our circles, if anybody says old Adam... That's equivalent to the old sinful self. So essentially just think of it was me before Jesus came into the picture. right? And it's called old Adam because that's sort of represented in the man of Adam in the Garden of Eve, the falling into sin and the, the corrupting of creation. Right? So in baptism, the old Adam in us should daily, should by daily contrition repent to drown and die. So that's interesting. So... Do you think in the Lutheran church we're going to baptize you every day? I'm going to show up at your house. No, of course not. I wouldn't have time to do anything else, right? Um, I, I don't even know if I'd have time to do that. Um, but, uh, so what does he mean by daily, you think? In your prayers? In your prayers, okay. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part. It, you talked about the remembrance or, or doing it publicly with a baby you did it the 
at the hospital. Uh -huh. It's the same type of thing where it's a remembrance of my baptism and reconnecting with it. And Very good. Reminding myself. Very good. So baptism is a one and done thing in the sense that God only needs to make the promise to you once. But it's a promise that's continually given. Right? So just as your promise of like you pr you're going to provide for your children, you told that to yourself you don't have to tell you yourself that every day, but you're living it out every day. Right? And so it's a promise that has a continual offering. And so baptism from God, the promises he's given you, the forgiveness of sins, the, the life everlasting salvation in Jesus, are continually being given to you through that promise. Okay, Which is why we believe that you can reject it. Right? Um, now... The remembrance, so we remember it weekly when we gather in church and we start in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Luther actually encourages you to remember it daily. So when you wake up in the morning, you should say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and make the sign of the cross. Or he even says, after, after God's word has been involved, now all of water should remind you of your baptism. So when you get in the bath or you take a shower, it should remind you of your baptism. When you drink water, it should remind you of your baptism. Right? And so you're, what you're doing with those sorts of remembrance practices is you're, you're, you're sort of reshaping your life to be oriented around the promises of God that you have in Jesus. Right? And so maybe you went to bed last night and you had a rough day. A lot of failure. People pointed out some mistakes. You're feeling bad yourself because you agree with them. You wake up the next morning and you're wondering what you're going to do. And then you start your day by saying, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you, all of a sudden you remember... Oh. Well, God says something about me. And he says that, yeah, that, some of that stuff happened. That's okay. You're still my child. Right? Um, so there's a great hymn in the new hymnal uh, called God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It. I am baptized into Christ. Satan, drop your ugly accusation. I am baptized into Christ. So baptism is meant to be something that whenever you're feeling the devil accuse you or you're accusing yourself, it can be held up and said, nope. Here's what God says about me. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He, but he knew all about all that stuff. And this is still what he says about me. Right? Um, and that's why we remember it in church every week. Okay? Uh, let's do this last part here. Where, uh, so how do we know it's this old Adam stuff? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And this is not an uncommon image in Scripture. So, um, when do the people of Israel begin their journey to the promised land? They were freed from slavery in which country? Egypt. After they went and then through, how did they... they... After they went through the Red Sea. Ah, they had to pass through some waters before they began their journey to the promised land that God had given them, right? And was it totally like not a bumpy ride after they went through the, no, right? It was like just a few days later, they're like, why did you bring us out into the wilderness to die? And it's like, and then you're reading that and you're thinking, dude, you just saw him like split an ocean. Yeah. 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 It always amazes me yeah. that they would lose their right. faith so quickly. And then, and then the crazy thing is I realized like, that's me, right? I'm that's that's my role in the story, and I'd I'd be doing the same thing. Right? So, um, so water as a passage into something is a common image in scripture, and it's used for two things. So, in the in the parting of the Red Sea, it's used to do what for the people of Israel? Help get them where they were supposed to go. It saves them. It saves them, right? Because somebody's chasing after them, Pharaoh and his army, and what do the waters do for Pharaoh and his army? They destroy them, right? So there's always a theme of salvation and destruction with the big water images in Scripture, and baptism is a continuation of that. So the destruction that's happening in your baptism is the destruction of the old sinful self, right? And the the salvation is the new life in Christ that's being brought through it. Right? So that's why it's always been identified as the entrance into the church from the beginning of the church, right? Is the old you, the old life of the world is being destroyed and left behind, and the new life rising from the dead out of it is now in Christ, right? And that's what Paul's talking about here, that baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
we too may live a new life. Okay? So on All Saints Day and at funerals, we're recalling the promises of God that this person, whoever you're thinking of, received in his word through the baptism and, and all of it. Right? As a way of reminding us, as, as we looked at today, the certain hope of the future in the kingdom of God. Because how does that, how, like that's the thing that keeps you going when you're wandering in the wilderness. Right? And when you're on the way is knowing the destination and what awaits you there. Right? And so sometimes people say, well, the hope for the future, what good is that to me now? It's like, well, that's like everything. Right? Like, if you don't have that, then what's the point of getting up in the morning? Right? That's the big answer to the question, why am I here? Where am I going? Right? It's like, if you don't have that, why do anything? Okay. Uh, we're just about out of time. Um, so, see, it only took us an hour to unpack the first, like, five words of the service. Um, so, so that's what's going on. All that is kind of wrapped up into the invocation at the beginning of the divine service. And I'll just do one little aside for the name. So I, I'm going to start calling it in our, in our class here divine service rather than worship service. Because... This name was chosen intentionally to identify who, in fact, is doing the serving. It is the divine. That is the, one of the unique things about the Christian faith, is we believe in a faith where God does the work of saving and not the, the devotee. Right? If we believed it was the devotee, then we wouldn't call it divine service, and it would start with us praising God. And instead, it's us reminding ourselves of what he's done for us already, and then we go straight into our first word as one of, yeah, I'm not so great. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not a good follower of you and all that good stuff. So that's what we'll be getting into next week as we'll be talking about confession and absolution. Um, just a note for your catechisms, especially for the, the people who are new here. Um, in the back is the explanation section. So it'll go into more detail on these. Um, the baptism part in the back is after the Lord's Prayer. 285? Yes, 285. So, if you're curious, there's a Means of Grace introduction on 281. I would recommend reading that. So that's going to talk about baptism, but it's also going to talk about some more of the stuff that we'll cover in future sessions. But it gives you a basic working understanding of sacraments. And then the baptism section starts on 285. Now in this section, you'll just get a lot more specific questions, and you'll get a lot more scripture references. So if any of the stuff that we covered today, maybe you agree with it, but you still don't feel like you know exactly where all that stuff comes from the scriptures, this would be a good place to look. And if you're going through any of that on your own and you encounter questions, that's why we, I get the note version, write it in there, and then when we get to those things in class, you can ask. Okay. So even though we're moving on um, to confession absolution next week, if you have questions about baptism that, you, that occurred to you over the week before uh, we meet again, don't worry, ask them. Okay. Um, we're not meeting next week because we have congregational meeting, um, so our next class will be on the 20th. Um, so you have a couple of weeks there. Um, and also, just in general, uh, if, if you need any, any questions answered, you can reach out to me uh, via email, um, and I'd be happy to... I just have a practical one. Yeah. I assume it, it, you have it in the order for this reason. Um, I haven't seen a baptism here. Are they at the beginning of the liturgy? They are, yes. So we had, um, actually, so Melissa was here with her, her little boy in the... In the whatever those are called, I'm sure I'm going to learn that shortly. Uh, uh, carrier. Carrier. Um, so yeah, we baptized him yeah. in October, um, and actually, the baptism replaces a portion of this section of the liturgy, I, which I forgot about. So we had extra long. So um, normally, you take the confession absolution part out because it happens in the baptismal rite. Um, because that's kind of the theme of baptism is the, the old you um, being put to death and the new you arising, which is essentially what we're doing in, in Christian absolution together. So, yeah. I just have to say that um, it's such a huge thing, like growing up and, and, and then through all my adult life going to a non denominational church. 
it's such a huge comforting thing to have the focus be, you know, divine service, like what God is doing. And we're here to get what he has to give us because if, if that's not the focus, it was always seemed like, well, I'm not doing enough. I'm, I'm probably not, you know, I know I believe and I, you know, but it's always, it's, it's, this is so much more comforting yeah well so so the the big distinctions we make that help with that is the law and the gospel mm -hmm. and what you're describing is you worship as a law it's a thing that i need to do in order to please god mm -hmm. it's the right thing for me to do um and the way we talk about it is more gospel um one of the best ways i heard about it was i was listening to a pastor who was talking to it was like post-covid and he was really trying to get people who are watching online you should really come back and serve us uh, in person because you're missing out and uh, he said and I'm not saying this as kind of like I'm wagging my finger at you and judging you but it's more like hey man I got a million dollars for you can you just pop in and pick it up mm -hmm. right because that's what God is bringing to you he's bringing these amazing gifts so right yeah well let's uh, let's close with the Lord's prayer <laughs> thanks Ron <laughs> our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.